Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hi, this is Bill Peacock, and welcome to episode 53 of the Liberty Cafe. I'm glad that you're with us here today and that you've been with us, whether it's your first day or you've been with us through all 53 episodes of the Liberty Cafe. Welcome. Also glad to have with us today our sponsor, in a sense. They're not sitting here right with me, although I'm right here in the recording studio at Texas Scorecard. Texas Scorecard has been very kind to sponsor the Liberty Cafe. I'm glad to be part of their team and fighting for liberty here in Texas and the United States. So thank you to Texas Scorecard. And finally, I'm happy to have with us today Todd Benson. Benson, Benson, sorry. And I'll get to introducing Todd in just a minute, but let me just lead up to that by saying that if you haven't noticed lately, this world is kind of crazy. And it's particularly kind of crazy when you get down around the Texas border and the Arizona border. And I don't know, maybe the California border. You don't hear as much about that uh, these days. But maybe Todd can help us on that. But we've had this mass wave of immigrants uh, or illegal aliens or whatever you want to call them coming across our border over the last, eh, I don't know, maybe we could date it back to maybe late January, yeah, or something like that. Um, and uh, I'm not sure what happened in January that might have changed all that, but maybe Todd can inform us on that as we get there. But, and of course, it's, this isn't the first time we've seen this going on. People want to come to America, and who can blame them, right? And this is a nice place to live. It's relatively safe for people, although there are places that aren't so safe in America as well. But relatively speaking, compared to many places in the world, it is. It's prosperous compared to most places. It's a good place to live and raise your family, earn a living. So who can blame them for wanting to come? But the question is, how does that work for the people who are already here? And how do we manage that process to maybe let some people in, keep others out. Who do we keep in? Who do we keep out? All those kinds of things. Well, that's the big picture, but Todd Bensman is sure to talk about us, to talk to us maybe about some of the big picture, but particularly about the specifics of what is going on now. Todd has a background uh, steeped in in both immigration, but even more so in in national security. He's the author of uh, a, a recent book that he put out, America's Covert Border War, The Untold Story of the Nation's Battle to Prevent Jihadist Infiltration. He's um, currently at the, the, uh, at the Center for Immigration Studies. He lives here in Texas, but he's working on this at a national and international issue for a CIS. Uh, he actually gets down, unlike a lot of people, he gets down to the border He goes down into Mexico. He's been down in Latin America, Central America, and looked at these types of things, testified before Congress. He knows a lot about what's going on at the border, and he also knows about the the, uh, public safety, the national security issues that go on with that. So we've got Todd on the show today to talk to us about all these different issues and 
maybe we're not going to make it uh, all these issues in just the next 20 to 30 minutes or so, but welcome to the Liberty Cafe, Todd. Thanks. Great to be here and appreciate you having me on. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad to have you on. I mean, you've been on Sebastian Gorka not too long ago, Tucker Carlson. I mean, I'm grateful you just appear on our humble little podcast. So hey. thank you. Thank you. All right. So there's a lot going on out there, Todd. And, and, and you know, at one point, it's, it's kind of hard to figure out what to even where even to start. But what's been in the news lately is this whole Haitian thing, which seems to have just come from nowhere. I mean, who's ever heard about Haitians coming across the border and this kind of numbers, and maybe it's not quite so new, but it's certainly the, the first time we've seen it at this level and it's caught our attention. So could you kind of just start us off by explaining what has happened over the last week, few weeks or months that, that have caused all this to happen? Right, well, Haiti is obviously a failed state. People are unable to live there uh, very well and and, um, and and any sort of health or security. So it's a it's definitely what what we would call a um, you know failed state that uh, people are fleeing in large numbers. So they always have whenever they could uh, gotten out of Haiti. And in this case, uh, we see Haitians fleeing, Oh, you know, five, six, seven years ago, large numbers. There was an earthquake in 2010. Uh, a lot of them left after that. And they settled mostly in Chile and Brazil. Uh, between Chile and Brazil, I think they probably took on about maybe 350 to 400,000 of them. And they settled there because uh, they wanted to get to the United States, but at that point, uh, the Trump administration uh, put in place policies that made the investment of the necessary smuggling money too risky to spend. Uh, the, the, the basic base, the baseline calculus of any immigrant who is coming from that far away or even from Central America is, will my five or $10,000 pay off with an entry into the United States so I can work illegally. That is the ultimate prize. And the Trump administration policies made it so that there's a better chance that you were gonna get pushed back into Mexico and that the Mexicans were gonna deport you backwards after that. So it didn't pay for uh, three or four years for the Haitians in Chile and Brazil to come. And then uh, that was made even worse by the uh, pandemic, March 2020, all the countries between Chile and Brazil and here closed their borders and it became even harder to get through. So for that year, nobody was really even trying. And then two things happened. One is the um, Biden, uh, Biden was elected and on, on a uh, platform that was loudly and uh, noisily pro-illegal immigration uh, and anti-enforcement, illegal immigration enforcement. And they all heard that for a long time. For about a year, they were all listening to the Democrats say that, even before it was Biden uh, who was the nominee. And once he was elected, you know, the very first thing he did was exempt family units 
from Title 42 pushbacks, pandemic-related pushbacks to Mexico. And so that opened the floodgates. Everybody who had a family from Brazil, uh, Haitians who were in Brazil or uh, Chile, uh, thought now is the time to spend my $5,000 or $10,000 on smuggling because I'm going to for sure get in. And they did. So that is the, the baseline for why uh, so many are coming now uh, from, from those two countries. Now, very few of them are actually from Haiti. I've been interviewing Haitians for a long time now, not just uh, from the recent Del Rio uh, encampment controversy, but for a long time before that in other countries, I was interviewing them. And, um, you know, I never have met one who was, who was directly from Haiti. Uh, they'd all been living in these other countries because those countries, Chile, if you look at the CIA World Factbook, Chile has got the strongest economy in Latin America. Great economy, stable economy, pretty good democracy. And uh, they were welcoming of the Haitians. They gave them work authorization in, ma in mass and uh, temporary residency. And so they were doing well. They were not starving to death. Nobody was persecuting them. They were doing just fine. Uh, and same with Brazil. When I talk to them about why are you coming here now, they say things like, well, we heard the border was open, that Biden was going to let us in. So we just want to upgrade, just kind of go from good to possibly great. And, and so um, this is not a uh, fleeing earthquakes and presidential assassination situation at all. However, there, are, there is a new wave of Haitians now coming from Haiti, directly from Haiti, because they're hearing they can get in too, and they are hitting Chile right now, brand new fresh Haitians. The Chileans are not taking it, and there are clashes right now in Chile between uh, Chilean military and um, police forces uh, trying to stop the flow of these Haitians there. So we, we will soon see real Haitians coming directly from Haiti to the border, but they've been coming all along. They have these, these periods of you know, influx. 2016, there was a huge influx. Uh, 2019, there was a huge influx. And then after the uh, Biden administration, for different reasons, and after the Biden administration and the pandemic border closures eased, we saw this one. That's a long answer, I get it. You can edit me down. <laughs> no, no, that, that's a great answer. And, and because I, I don't think many people are familiar with how all this came to pass. I, I certainly wasn't. And and it, it just it's it's really kind of mind blowing to, to see how much it's changed just in the last, you know, again, the last few, few months and how this has come on. So the, I guess one thing to take out of that is there was this sort of this pent up demand a little bit down in Central America, South America of folks uh, who were um, ready to come, not necessarily fleeing oppression or anything like that, but just had always kind of wanted to be here, but couldn't because of a variety of things, including, you know, 
some determination on the part of America not to let them in. And, and when that went away and maybe some other things opened up, they, they decided to make the move. Uh, and then, of course, you, you said you got this new wave coming in as well uh, from all that. So that's this group of Haitians coming in. Ha, has there been a what about others? How, how much of the whole bunch of folks coming in right now are these Haitians versus people coming from other countries and nationalities? So the numbers show us that the CBP data shows us that about two, we're at about 200,000 encounters a month at the border. It's been like that since I think we hit uh, 200,000 in June. And so it's been either more or a little bit less every month since then. Before that, it was um, most, I would say the, the majority of these are Central Americans coming from the tri Northern Triangle countries. And what we're seeing now is about 27% non-Central Americans and non-Mexicans. In other words, they're from all over the world. That's a, a big chunk. That's a quarter of everybody who's coming through uh, not being from Central America or Mexico. Whereas in the past, if you look at the historical trend, it was like, you know, two or 3% of non, I mean, it was a very small slice of the pie. Now a big giant slice of the pie, a quarter plus. And what's, what my read on that is that the, the Biden administration's policies, starting with the promise of a moratorium on deportations, an end to repatriation flights back to home countries, um, an, a new uh, ability to apply for asylum inside the United States instead of having to apply in Mexico and wait in Mexico, and um, promises of amnesty uh, for everybody who can get in. Uh, that's all part of the administration's platform. It's published. They spoke about it constantly during the campaign. Um, a de-emphasis on law enforcement and on every other possible control, uh, lever control on the border. The, the whole world, I mean, immigrants are smart people. They all have cell phones and news and they speak with one another and you know, word travels instantaneously uh, about right. you know, anything that happens. And that got out to every country in the world. And so that's why so many more are coming now oh. from outside of the Northern Triangle. It's a, a, an incredible opportunity to get into the country. And here's the thing is that the Biden administration is allowing family units to come through and they're still pushing back single adults. But you would think that that would deter single adults because they keep, when they get caught, they get taken right back to Mexico. But I spent a lot of time with those people in Mexico right after they got pushed back. I'm right there interviewing them. <laughs> you know, why, what, how many times did, is this, is this, how many times have you tried this? Five, six, eight, seven, they keep trying over and over again. And I always ask, well, why would you keep doing this uh, when you keep getting caught? 
And the answer is always because every time a group of us goes over, a bunch of us get through. We're going to just keep going because we know eventually we're going to get through and there's no consequence to repetitive right. attempts. And so those people are getting through to the interior. If you get past the 100 mile mark, there's no deportation. Really? No deportation operations anywhere in the country for any reason at all. Uh, and so they know this. They know that if they can just get through, they're safe for years, for at least the years of the Biden administration and probably well beyond that. Right. And the goal of all of this is to work illegally in the country. That is the golden chalice, not to be here legally at all. That would be a great bonus with like, that would be crystal set with the, your golden chalice. But the main thing is to just get in and work illegally and send money home and all that. And yeah. Eventually they figure they're going to get in. All of them will apply for asylum to the ends of being able to stay illegally because none of them are eligible for asylum. Uh, these are economic migrants by definition. Uh, they're coming from countries that are economically depressed. There is very little political persecution in Haiti or Chile or um, Guatemala or any of those countries that you can point to. So they're going to apply, get into the backlog that's three or four years long, use that to advantage. And when they get turned down for asylum, they're here. Yeah. Come track me down. Never yeah. going to happen. <clears throat> and so you can see why the entire world is on their way here. Yeah. Well, th that kind of points back to something you were talking about all the, these Haitians coming from all over the place. Um, and but but starting down in Chile and Brazil, well, I'm not a geographer, but the last time I checked a map, you can't get to the United States from Chile or Brazil without going through a number of countries. What's happening? Are those company countries not interested in stopping these people? I mean, what's going on with those countries? You know, like coming right out of you know Colombia and then moving into Central America. What what's going on down there to, that allows this to keep on going? So, in order for this global, I call it a United Nations of illegal immigration, because it's like people from every possible country. I've met Russians down there. I've met Ghanans. Cameroonians, Congolese, I mean, you name it, I've met them down there, Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, uh, Iranians I've met and interviewed, and uh, Syrians and Jordanians, I mean, they're coming from everywhere that you can, Indonesia. Um, they have to pass through what's called the Darien Gap, which is the, to get from, first they get to themselves as South America. And then once you're in South America, you, and you want to get to the United States, you, you go to Colombia, because Colombia is the nation that borders Panama and gets you over to the North America, from South America to North America. And there's a big jungle there and smuggling trails through there. And it usually takes anywhere from five to 10 days. And it's a foot uh, track through the jungle, guided by smugglers most of the time. You pay to get through there. It's dangerous. There's bandits, uh, you know, biting snakes and all of that kind of thing. But it's worth the risk because 
It's kind of like the Yukon Trail back in 1898, right? You wanted to get to the gold fields and you had to cross glaciers and sometimes people didn't make it, but it's all part of the adventure and that the end is a pot of gold kind of a thing. And that's what this right. is. So it's really usually not about real desperation because real desperation would be that if you're from Cameroon, you would just get yourself over to the next country or to um, Brazil or somewhere else and you're, and be very grateful, <laughs> you know, you're safe from whatever the terrible thing was. But if you keep going, that is evidence that your goal, your plan is not to find safe haven somewhere out of desperation, but as an economic migrant to improve your economic lot. The Colombians do not want thousands and tens of thousands of immigrants to stay in their country. That is a drain on the national treasury. They openly tolerate and allow and enable professional smuggling organizations to operate on their territory to get them into the Darien Trail and moved out. The Panamanians are the same way. It's in their national interest to not have these people stay in their country or be blocked in their country if they're going to move anyway. So they have a, an official policy in Panama where the government moves the migrants to the next country of Costa Rica. They collect them, the military takes care of them. They have a series of hospitality camps where they can stay and rest up after the jungle trip. They're given food, access to medical treatment, money services, and then the government arranges for big air-conditioned commercial buses to come in and load up and take them all day, this is happening all day right now, to the Costa Rica border. In years past, and I've been to Panama and I've witnessed this, I've watched it happen. I followed the buses, I watched them load, I watched them drive, I watched them empty out in Costa Rica, processing in Costa Rica, back on the buses into Costa Rica's hospitality camp system all the way up to Nicaragua. And so these countries between Colombia, Panama, and Costa Rica, as a matter of official policy, are the smugglers. They are moving these people through. My issue with that is that those nations are bottleneck, geographically bottlenecked. They are perfect places for the United States to have those allied countries reverse course on that. And maybe at our expense, American taxpayer expense, I, I get that, um, to begin to detain, interdict, and send them home on repatriation flights, uh, back to home countries, uh, back to uh, third other countries to apply for asylum there where they cannot get through so readily and easily at the government uh, arrangement. And I believe that if we really wanted to stop that kind of flow, which is at historic levels, the New York Times says 95,000 have crossed through just in the last nine months uh, of the Biden administration. And before that, it would be like, you know, six to 10,000 in any given full year. Uh, and we're looking at 10 times that amount right now. Um, I think it's, and a lot of them are Haitian. So if it's in the U.S. interest to halt that, 
then we need to make Colombia, Panama, and Costa Rica see the light on that and make it easy for them. You know, don't make it a burden for the, those countries. Pay for the repatriation flights, provide uh, ice air down there. They have good airstrips. I've seen them. Got military bases down there. Well, you know, and I want to get into how to stop it uh, a little bit and talk about that as well in a little bit. But before before we do that, I'd just like to talk about this. You talked about if it's in the American interest, right? And, and we all have this kind of understanding of some of the problems. Well, we don't all have this understanding, but a lot of us have this understanding about some of the problems that come in, you know, with with immigrants coming in, rule of law, jobs, health issues, you know, just, you know, bringing them in, how to deal with all this mass group. That's a big part of the problem. We kind of see that, but, but it, when you're back there talking about people not just coming from Central America or even South America or from Haiti, that they're coming from all over the world, that, that starts to seem to have some real national security implications to that. Could you talk about that aspect of this problem and, and America's interest in stopping that? Among that United Nations of illegal immigration that I uh, mentioned a few minutes ago are people from Pakistan, Afghanistan. Every year, Afghanis, Afghans cross the Texas border after coming through there from all of the countries of terrorism concern where we have fought uh, the war on terror militarily and uh, from an intelligence perspective and um, uh, as a, um, a matter of protecting the homeland against foreign infiltration. And, um, and those people are coming to the border all the time by the thousands from those countries usually without any identification whatsoever. Uh, they say, my name is Mickey Mouse and I declare asylum and we take them in and we hope against hope that they're not the bad guy. And uh, most of them aren't the bad guy, but that's almost beside the point. It's that we don't really know, even when we do the best vetting that we can at that border. And when we are doing the best vetting that we can. It's because we have some semblance of control. Uh, things aren't spinning like they are right now. Uh, but right now, uh, everything's off the rails and anything can happen. Anybody can cross. Uh, 50,000 people a month are getting through into the interior uh, without ever being encountered by a border patrol agent or a National Guard or DPS or anybody else. Um, and those people are considered already a heightened national security threat just by virtue of where they're from. They're from Afghanistan. Right. We don't know who you are. You are a special interest alien. We call, we will call them a special interest alien. I just wrote a piece yesterday, uh, Bill, if I can mention, I don't know if you uh, saw this yet. Sure. But uh, the State Department just put a $2 million reward. Oh yeah, I saw it on the Pakistani, right? Right, this is a human smuggler who runs a network that brings Afghans from Pakistan and Afghanistan 
through the Darien Gap to the Texas border. And they've been doing it for six years now. And quite a few of the people that, that this guy, his name is Abid Khan, Ali Abid Khan. Uh, he's a fugitive. He's indicted in absentia right now. DOJ indicted this guy in April of this year uh, when the border was spinning out of control. And they just yesterday put out a reward for him because the Afghan, the fall of Afghan has created this massive swell of outflowing Afghan refugees into, guess where? Pakistan. Uh, Three million by the last count are estimated to be on their way into Pakistan. Wow. And that's this guy's sweet spot. Uh, and it, it's, I don't believe it's a coincidence, although they didn't say this in the press release, that they suddenly decided to put a $2 million bounty on this guy. Uh, and also on any information that might disrupt his organization because he can bring Afghans through the Darien Gap to the Texas border, which is in terrible disarray. Uh, and I have predicted that we will see a great many more Afghans uh, in the coming months as these refugee camps fill up and people get frustrated and want to go places. And we're not giving out visas anymore. Well, so, I'm a little little curious about why this is such a big deal when America seems to be flying more Afghans than that every day into the country on U.S. military jets and things. Well, because the one thing that the American media is not showing and telling is about this end run at the border that has always existed. When Donald Trump tried to shut down Syrian legal immigration, remember that? He was like, we're not resettling any more Syrians. They're a dangerous kind of, uh, we're just gonna say no to that. Right. Well, they just, they just came in over the border by the hundreds and hundreds. So they applied for asylum and all of them to my knowledge got in. I mean, almost everybody got in who could reach the border and the border is a, is a back door. Uh, and anybody who's got $20,000 in Afghanistan, like a terrorist group, uh, ISIS has it, Taliban has it, Khorasan uh, Network has it. Uh, other they, they can just sell off some of their, you know, surplus American military equipment and get the money or, you know. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, one reason why, I mean, somebody in, the Homeland Security Enterprise is paying attention to this back door, even if the American public isn't. I'm pretty sure I'm the only one who's written a word about the $2 million reward for Abdi Khan. And that should tell you something about how, you know, obscure this route is. And this notion is that people can come in over the border well, no, it's it's not really obscure, is it? It's just they don't want to talk about it. Is it is it more that the media just doesn't want to acknowledge this is going on at all? I, I think I'm going to say, yeah, I agree with you. It's the reason why it's obscure is because right there's a lot of rejectionism and denial denialism about this traffic and the the potential threat that it poses. Uh, it's a, the whole point of my book is to just put it out there that, hey, you know, maybe the American media doesn't see it, but 
the American Homeland Security enterprise sees it as a major threat and they spend on it and they work on it all the time, day and night. Yeah. So, so we talked a little bit earlier, you mentioned about how, how to stop this, putting pressure on some of these countries down in, in uh, Central uh, South America, Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica, those kind of things. Um, and you talked about paying them money or not necessarily paying them money, but kind of doing it on the American taxpayer dime. And, and so I guess the first thing on that is, is for me, my perspective is, so if you're going to put pressure on them, you have to understand why they're doing what they're doing in the first place, right. To, to get that. And you mentioned it's in their interest just to get them through the country. Is it, easier for them to do that to try and stop them from crossing yes. the border is yes. that yes especially the panamanians they have this completely unenforceable uh, southern border with colombia it's just a jungle wilderness it, you cannot enforce it anything about so you can't stop them from coming in all you can do is play ball <laughs> you know it's um What's that kind of martial arts? Uh, I forget where it's it's not about uh, offense. It's about kind of what do you call yeah, that? Yeah, rolling. I don't know if it's you roll with the punches kind of thing. Yeah, uh, use their weight against them, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't know if that's jujitsu or whatever. Something like that. That's yeah. that's what the Panamanians are doing, and the Costa Ricans, they can't stop it coming uh, from Colombia, but Colombia could make it hard. Colombia could repatriate by air, could block, could stop, could send them back to other countries that they came from. Uh, they don't want to do that because that's very expensive and it's a drain on an already taxed resource of police and military. Uh, they've got all these other problems in Colombia, like with cocaine right. uh, and drug trafficking. And so this one is just an easier jiu-jitsu move for the Colombians. But if somebody else was picking up the bill to help them uh, have an infrastructure in place at Colombia, it would drastically reduce the number of people that are flocking down there to the, uh, the uh, Colombia's northern coastline where they take these ferries over to the, to the uh, these islands over there, which then bring them to the to the trailheads, right? Right. Block that off. They could block that off. They wouldn't stop everybody, but it would be it would increase the risk that your money, that your return on investment, isn't going to pay off. And that, right. remember, is the key. The Panamanians, uh, for their part, can't really do much uh, except collect the, the migrants, but that is a very, very uh, tactically uh, powerful ability because if you can, you, they're coming out of the wilderness, hungry, starving, you know, tired and all the rest right. of that, they have no choice but to turn themselves in to end the physical uh, yeah. you know, to, to torment of, of going through there. And so the Panamanians can very easily get most of them into camps. If you have most of them into camps, you have then have choices, right? Uh, you can put them on buses and just move them out. It's cheap. 
they pay $40 a head for the bus tickets themselves. Uh, but if American planes were there uh, at any one of a number of uh, Panamanian Air Force facilities in that jungle area, the Darien Gap area, they could, they could change the, the whole dynamic, which is to say that they would create a very powerful deterrent. Okay. For spending that money. And then the same goes for the Costa Ricans as a third line of defense. So that by the time Mexico comes into play, because we already try to get Mexico to do this stuff, they did it under Trump and it was pretty effective. But imagine all four of those countries doing it at the same time. That, that would be quite helpful. Well, you know, a lot of this reminds me of, I mean, talking about the down in Central America, it talks, reminds me of, what Mark Stein says, he talks a lot about this, and he said, you know, he, he constantly pointed out how we're fighting these wars over in Iran and particularly Afghanistan against terrorism or, or battles, he, as he puts it. But we're losing the war because we, we can't guard our own borders, right? So what can we do in addition to all this stuff, whether it's down in Central America, even Mexico, is there anything we can do to better guard our own borders in real time with Americans down there? What can we do for that? Well, I'm, I'm from the uh, school of Trump on, on that. And the Trump administration had it right in that they were able to concoct innovative, completely innovative policies that were designed to get at right down deep into the brain core of migrant decision-making. It was really brilliant almost, I mean, or devious, depending on which side of the partisan divide you were on, but it just got into decision-making and they understood, for example, that all of those immigrants who come over to the border and declare asylum are using the asylum system to just get in past the border patrol and then work illegally. Um, the Trump administration recognized that and they came up with Wait in Mexico, which is directly addressed that uh, magnetizing, you know, pull factor uh, because nobody came for the great Mexican dream. Uh, right. and, and, how, and how do I know this? Because when they were doing weight in Mexico, I would go down to Mexico and find all the people that just got pushed back under MPP and they were going to have to wait in Mexico for four months until they're, and they were like, I'm, get, I'm leaving. I didn't come here for this. I spent $4,000 to get this far and now this, and I'm telling all my friends and everybody don't come until this thing's over. <laughs> and so it, it, it pretty was simple. It was either devious or brilliant, uh, but the point is, is that it created a, a deterrence on dis, in the decision making, which is always financial. It's always economic, uh, and it's always um, can I get in and stay in illegally? Um, that's just one example. But Trump made great use of another another uh, fantastic uh, policy that in my view, fantastic. If you wanna stop illegal immigration at the border, mass illegal immigration at the border, 
is he began repatriation flights. If you were Guatemalan and, or, or Honduran and we caught you and you uh, didn't apply, you didn't get your asylum and uh, you had a removal order on you, we would fly you back to the tarmac in Tegucigalpa. We, he sent 50,000 Guatemalans home, flew them home on ice air wow. in like a short period of time. Well, what do you think those 50,000 people messaged to all their friends and relatives in the village? Don't go. Of course not. You're going to borrow $5,000 and this is, you're going to end up back on the tarmac. So those kinds of policies have to zero in on that decision-making process. And in order for that to happen, you have to understand how migrants think. Um, I feel like I know how migrants think because I talk to them all the time. Yeah, All the time I'm talking to them about why they're doing what they're doing, and they'll tell you. It's not that difficult. Now, if I can just do a quick aside here, um, the Del Rio camp of the, a few weeks ago, that crisis, yeah. something very interesting happened there that is a, uh, that even the Biden administration probably learned is that he wanted that camp gone for political reasons. He's, he wasn't interested in shutting down the broader crisis, just that camp and the 15,000. In order to shut that down, you have to first close the spigot off to new people coming in. And then you have to bus everybody out until it's gone. It's kind of like, you know, pardon the, uh, but it's, it's like, you know, treating a canker sore you know, on the lower lip or something, you know, you just keep applying the thing until it's gone. Sure. And so um, that's, that was the, the strategy, which was predicated on repatriation flights of Haitians. That was a play right out of the Trump playbook and Biden did it. And he took a lot of heat from his progressive left about doing it. But he did it because he knew that it played on the decision making. Somebody in his orbit, anyway, knew, yeah. and he and he had to have approved it. Now I was in the camp when it was flooding, and I was on the Mexican side of the camp at the spot where, right in the spigot, where they were all coming in with their backpacks and right at the bus station. I was there, and I was the buses would come in from southern Mexico and disgorge Haitians and they would all head right down to the river uh, you could follow them down there I mean and I interviewed all of them and the reason they were coming was because they could it was open everybody was getting through and the selfies were all there makes sense Biden puts in these repatriation flights and the very first two flights that hit the tarmac in Port-au-Prince those guys were texting back to everybody in that camp who texted to everybody instantly, instantly. And 5,000 of them left. They fled south out of the camp, back across the Rio Grande to the, a public park in Acuna where I happened to be. And I interviewed all of the ones that I could get my hands on for hours. And every single one of them had the same story. We are out of here because there's a chance we could be flown home all the way to Haiti and we won't even take, they, they were only sending like, they sent about 2,500 back. They didn't have to send everybody back. 
They just had to send a certain number of examples back right. to make it a risky proposition. There's a chance that you could get sent back. And the decision making was let's run. <laughs> I went to the I went to no. the Acuna bus station that time, and guess what I found? The place was filled with Haitians buying bus tickets back south to oh, South Mexico. I saw a picture in one of your articles on that. Yeah. The point being is that repatriation flights don't even have to be universal. They just have to be there. Right. It's a possibility, a significant enough possibility, and it has that that impact on behavior. So you don't have to physically stop people who aren't coming. And that's that's the beauty of these deterrence-based policies as people just stay home or they go somewhere else. Yeah. Well, it, it, it seems so straightforward that it makes me wonder if the, there are people in this country who don't want to stop it, but we'll, we'll take that on another time. Right. And, and worry about that. So, well, thank you really Todd for being here today. This has been very informative to me. I hope it's been informative to our listeners today and Keep up the good work. It's it's great to see you out there doing this and, and bringing light into the darkness of this whole mess on mass immigration. Thank you very much. Always happy to be here. Let me know if you want me to come back. All right. And thank you again to all of our listeners today and to Texas Scorecard, our great sponsor. And we'll be back again next week with episode 54 of the Liberty Cafe. Thank you for listening to The Liberty Cafe by Texas Scorecard. You can find more shows and great content at texasscorecard.com. Please consider leaving a review or rating the show on whatever podcasting platform you listen on.